Back to the Queer Circle podcast, where queer healers come to the mic to share their journeys and what they tell their younger selves. Today's guest is Jamie Pineda. He has Tagalog and Chinoy ancestry, is queer, non-binary, trans hilot, and Chinese medicine practitioner based in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome to the Queer Circle, Jamie. was born in Southern California, I believe Tongva, Tongva land. Um, and my both my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. My dad immigrated when he was uh, about 12 years old. And then my mom immigrated when she was 16. And I grew up in a very, um, I grew up in a very suburban town. So if, if, any of you listeners are familiar with Corona, California, that the intersection of two different freeways in Southern California, like it's very much a commuter town, um, used to be full of orange groves. And so when my family moved there, they had just cut down the orange groves and were building tons and tons of, of track housing around that area. Um, so it was, yeah, it's, that part of my life is not doesn't seem like super interesting um, as far as my origin story, but I will say that um, there are moments in my childhood that were incredibly formative for me. And I, I talk about this story a lot, um, especially when I'm doing workshops, but uh, one of my earlier memories of being different um, specifically like being racially different from a lot of my peers is is like a lunchtime story so uh in elementary school the school that i went to was very was mostly a lot of white kids and there weren't a ton of um, kids of color and i remember uh, being bullied a lot for being filipino and or filipinx and not understanding not really understanding why that was happening. Um, one of the instances that I remember is being, um, is like bringing, bringing a lunch to school and having that lunch be filled with like rice and fish and all kinds of like delicious, stinky stuff that was not um, part of like the mainstream Western diet and being so embarrassed that, that, that I didn't have Lunchables or that I didn't have like, a ham and cheese sandwich and a juice box um, that like I learned as an adaptive measure to hide that food or throw it away um, or do whatever I could to get rid of it so that I could conform. Um, and like for a really long time when I, after I realized I was doing that, I became ashamed of that ad adaptation um, so it was, it's weird, right? Like you're, I was ashamed for being ashamed. 
Um, and then where I am now in, in my uh, relationship to that is to really honor that as a survival mechanism and to go back and see the adaptations that my parents had made that I used to be ashamed of um, and changing my relationship as well to be like, okay, like this was about survival. This wasn't about me being ashamed of my culture. Um, although that that was part of it, but ultimately underneath that is is survivorship. Um, and that has definitely informed how I practice medicine and how I approach um, healing today. So I practice Chinese medicine and um, Hilot, which is a traditional Philippinex um, uh, medicine. And uh, a lot of that has to do with um, how we consume food, how we relate to the outside world and our environment, how we relate to each other, all of these things impact our health. So it's not just, you know, like food medicine in that it's just the food that we eat. It's also like, well, but who are we getting that food from? What does that food mean? Whose ancestors created that dish? Like how did, what is the story of that dish coming across like, um, like through immigration into its present being and its present form? And what is the story that is continuing with that food? So like my idea of the way, my ideas of practicing medicine in a holistic way are, um, it's, I, 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 I relate to the word holistic in a very expansive, more um, inclusive kind of way, where it's like, it's not just mind body, it's not just the physical and the non-physical, it's like a very non-linear relationship where there's the present and there's also the past and there's also the future. And there's also that those lateral horizontal relationships with the people around us and the cultures around us. And all of that is part of the context of um, someone's wellness. It's part of the context of, of my role as a healing practitioner. realizations of queerness and gender and sexuality, I don't know if there were specific incidents that brought me into realization around it or, or even like self, self-awareness around those things. I would say that a lot of it was really influenced by my cultural background. And so the gender roles that were happening in my family didn't really mirror, I guess, like, like white, like the white narrative of understanding queerness and gender and sexuality. Like for the longest time, my mom was, um, had to be the breadwinner in our family. Like my dad is the one who was really good at cleaning and cooking and like maintaining the household. In the Philippines, like our ancestral traditions were matriarchal. So this idea of like what gender roles were was not the same. Like, oh my God, when I got to college, I was fucking horrified when I realized that all of the dudes that I was like, who were my peers, 
like couldn't do shit. Like they couldn't clean, they couldn't cook, they had disgusting hygiene. Um, and and also like this is this is also overlapping with white culture because these these were like like white people that I went to college with. So it it is just I don't think I had those realizations in that same way. Um, like I remember there are snapshots where I like remember um, watching my dad shaving in the mirror and just being like, oh yeah, I'm like I'm like dad's buddy. I'm gonna grow up like dad. And I would get my toothbrush and like foam the toothpaste in my mouth and then lather my face with the toothpaste foam and then shave it off with my toothbrush. <laughs> so there, there was just like at, at certain points, like a lack of um, inhibition that this wasn't supposed to be a possibility. It was just like, oh, yeah, like clearly like I can grow up like this or, or whatever. Um, and it wasn't till I like, yeah, like there, there were other expectations of me that were, that were sort of gender related that just didn't fit white gender stereotypes. Like I'm the oldest in my family. And so, um, like within my siblings and also within my cousins. So I would say that there was an expert, um, ex expectation that I would take on some kind of matriarchal role in the family at some point, like like leadership and, and being able to take care of people and manage a, a family household. Um, like I remember the expectation, like if my sisters were doing poorly in class, like I was supposed to help them with their homework. I mean, I rebelled against a lot of that too, because it was not, um, it wasn't what my white friends were experiencing. So I was like, this must be wrong. Um, but I would say like that, that it that I can't think of gender without thinking of this other context as part of it. Um, as soon as I started having language around how to call myself and name my gender identity, um, that like that was an interesting experience because I didn't really have that till college when I started. Um, experiencing it more in an academic setting. Um, and I'm going to say like implied in that academic setting is also there's white culture. It wasn't that it was only white people introducing these concepts to me, but it was in an academic setting um, with white culture as part of it. And it created a conflict for me because um, then I started seeing like, like queer acceptance and um, acceptance around gen like different kinds of genders and se and sexuality and in general, I started associating that with white culture, and I didn't have the background at the time um, or the historical context at the time to realize that that was actually colonial culture as well. That third genders, multiple genders, different kinds of sexuality had existed in my ancestral cultures before Spanish colonizers and US colonizers had arrived there. So, and, and, and on that arrival, of course, like they impose like Catholicism, um, they violently suppress different people with different gender roles that were not European, European binary roles. Um, and so like with my family's own discomfort around like gender and sexuality and trying to work with that, and not finding that acceptance, 
And then layered underneath that is like that, that, that we used to have that, like that was kind of a mind fuck. Um, I don't know if I expressed that like so clearly because it's, it's like a back and forth, like nonlinear process. Um, I guess as is everything, like nothing's really that linear. That's in my mind, that's kind of an illusion. Um, but that again is like, it's kind of like my relationship with, with like cultural foods where, you know, like I have it and it is nourishing. And then I develop a relationship with it where I become ashamed because it is hostile to have that. Um, and then like, I have more education and more experience. And then I come back around to, to reclaim it. And so that's, that's kind of where I am with queerness and gender and sexuality right now is like, oh, it's not just like, we need gay marriage, or we need access to hormones, or we need access to all these things. Um, that I mean, those things are all, I want those things to happen. Um, I'm not anti any of those things. It's that the bigger thing underneath is that those things existed before. It is not actually progress a lot of times, it's actually reclaiming and going back to some of our ancestral ways and understanding that we already had these roles and this openness and these different relationships with gender and sexuality um, that have been denied. Like these, these things are all birthrights. Um, so for me, that really changes the conversation around um, queer rights and trans rights, um, even monogamy. Like a lot of cultures are not inherently monogamous um, or inherently like they don't have the same values around um, sexuality and virginity and marriage and all of this stuff. Like that is that is something that we need to be critical of um, so that we when we choose it, we are actually choosing it in an informed way and we're choosing it in a way that is not harmful to us or other people. If we, if we want to achieve it. <laughs> For a long time, I felt like I had to choose between queer friendly, queer loving, trans loving white community or possibly homophobic, transphobic, BIPOC community. Um, and that, that is an illusion that is not actually, um, those aren't actually the only choices that we have, although it may seem like that. And I wholeheartedly want to also acknowledge that, um, that, that illusion still impacts us. Like it still impacts like who we have access to, because to go deeper than that is sometimes, um, it compromises our safety, right? Like to investigate beyond that can, can be dangerous sometimes. Um, we have different levels of access to that at different points in our lives. So for example, I um, lived in the Seattle area from 20, wait, 2003, I think until 2018. So about 15 years around Seattle area, like between Seattle and Olympia. And it took within that time, it took me like at least 10 years to feel like I had QT BIPOC community. 
Um, part of that might just be Seattle and the Seattle freeze and the fact that it's it's a little harder to socialize there for a lot of people. But it took me a long time to really cultivate people who um, were not in either of those camps of like being brown or black and homophobic and then being like white and like all about the pride flag, but still like underlying racism. Um, so there is complexity in that. And it's also, um, again, like if I put it back to decolonizing and going at that, it, it simplifies my navigating of it. It simplifies the conversations around it too, like to learn how to talk and communicate and connect around these issues um, that's not solely reliant on academic ling lingo. Um, that can really shut people out and, and like inhibit conversation that could actually happen. So I'll, I'll give an example um, about like my own family which has, you know, it's been, it's been a learning curve for everyone to understand um, like gender stuff and sexuality and to have some openness around it. Um, and for me as well, to like be able to sit with other people like trying to process it over long periods of time. Um, like my, my family, even though everyone is at this point uh, very fluent in English, like if they weren't born in the US, because their first language was still Tagalog, um, they have they still have problems with pronouns. Because in Tagalog, there is no gendered pronoun. So it doesn't exist as like a language concept. And they only learn that when they learn English or or other languages like Spanish or whatever. So it is very characteristic of like a native Tagalog speaker to have a little more difficulty. Um, with with using pronouns and switching pronouns because even if someone else they're talking to is cis, they might still mix up their pronouns. So the mixing up of the pronouns might actually not be related to a misgendering. It's more related to like a fluency of language. Um, obviously, there are situations when it is related to misgendering, but it's that isn't the only. That's not just default. What's going to happen? So understanding that for me like really makes a big difference on how I relate to my family and what what gender is and what my expectations are of how my family shows up for me around trans rights around like queer rights um, that is different from like white families that I've been close to so my parents are probably never going to go to a pride parade but like my dad, like for my graduate, for my college graduation, got me a, um, a barong tagalog. A barong tagalog is traditionally like a men's, um, traditional menswear, like a, a sheer banana fiber, uh, pineapple fiber shirt. So he like took my measurements and everything, and then sent that to the tailor so that we could have that shirt made so that I could wear it on my graduation. So it's there wasn't necessarily a discussion, but. Some of that acceptance um, will happen in different ways, ways that have not been sanctioned by white queer culture. So it takes a little bit of flexibility of, of your perception of my perception 
to see that. So I'm not just expecting them to show up in a white way around acceptance and love. Um, there was a lot of conflict um, when, in my family as I was growing up because of the relationship between my mom and my dad was like very, very toxic. And so a lot of, a lot of the ways that I learned were from my peers. There was a lot of peer mentoring, um, like watching the relationships of my, of my friends, um, parents that seemed to be like functioning really well and understanding like what that looked like. A lot of books, a lot of, um, I would say like, a lot of a lot of the things that I've learned have honestly come from fiction, from sci-fi fantasy novels. Like I'm talking like Octavia Butler, um, like these people with just really expansive minds, where they're able to talk about the harsh realities that are happening really like right now, but they can present in in a way um, where it's removed enough that we can confront something that might be really horrible or really complex or really perverse. Um, and that distance by making it a little bit, just a little bit more fantastical. I mean, not all of Octavia's stuff is that fantastical. Like I just read Parable of the Sower. <laughs> I'm like, this is again, a little bit too real. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's like using fiction to actually say something that's very real. So that I, I definitely relied on a lot. Um, I, I mean, I still do actually, like I still, I'm a huge fan of N.K. Jemisin. Um, I feel like reading fifth season is explaining a lot of things to me about what's happening now, um, environmentally, socially, and politically. Um, when I started having a very solid QT BIPOC community, again, like I have a huge amount of mentors through that as well, because a lot of us, um, a lot of us ended up, at least in my friend group, ended up being some kind of healing practitioner. And I say that broadly, as in like, my friends are social workers, they're midwives, they're also healer practitioners, they're tattoo ritualists, um, they're therapists, like they're, like through this, through this community, like I've learned a ton that cannot be um, learned through books. Like I've learned, I've watched people like navigate really complex relationships. I've watched people um, navigate really fucked up nonprofit industrial complex. Like all of these, all of these things I've, I've learned, I learned like just watching and observing and talking with my peers, because a lot of us don't have access to, um, I mean, I certainly didn't, didn't have access to elders that were accepting um, and uplifting of like all of who we are. And so we, we, we go elsewhere for that. Um, I, like at this point, I do have, I have mentors for um, more, more like official standard looking types of mentors. Um, like I have my teachers in the Philippines who taught me um, Hilot, so Lakai Magbaya and Apuadman. 
the Hilo Academy of Bailan, and we still talk um, almost every week. And there, I have learned so much from them and I'm continuing to learn a lot from them. They're the first Hilo practitioners and teachers that I know that have actually brought that material, like that body of knowledge um, into a virtual, virtually accessible format. So they're actually teaching classes online. Um, and that is in response to the pandemic. So prior to that, like it's, you had to go to the Philippines to learn with them. Um, and they were one of the more visible training programs out there. It, it was, it took me several years to even find them and to find a program where I could learn my traditional medicine because a lot of it is um, passed down through families or it's like very specific to certain tribes and you need to like be within that tribal membership um, to access it. Uh, or it's like practiced like deep underground. Because remember, like the Spanish colonizers came and basically tried to kill anyone who was practicing those things. So that medicine had to survive either through syncretizing with Catholicism or being practiced like in secret. So a lot of it is still, um, you know, like very intermingled with Catholicism where you're like, uh, that's fucking magic. But everyone's like, no, 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 it's Catholic. <laughs> um, I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, so it's, yeah, like it's been a journey to, to find mentors and to find teachers, um, who hold that kind of knowledge. So I've had to be a little creative with that, or I've had to find mentorships that, um, were very specific, functional, like not as personal. So of course I have my mentors through acupuncture school um, who have taught me a huge amount of clinical knowledge and they're very like very talented at um, clinical work but a lot of them are also like straight white men so they don't have the context or the community that I have um, and they don't have the same mission that I have in doing that kind of clinical work so I can't, I can like, I feel like I like take the knowledge and the training that they offer me and then I redistribute it <laughs> to, to other groups um, who have less access or I do it in a way that is in relationship to the fact that white people practicing medicine that's not theirs who aren't doing reparations or reciprocity to that culture, I need to in a different relationship with that medicine. I need to practice it in a way that is not extractive and that it is coming back to the cultural origins that it's from. One of my earlier mentors from acupuncture school is actually Sachiko Nakano. And um, Sachiko is deeply embedded in a lot of public health work in the Seattle area, she works with uh, with ACRS, the Asian Counseling and Referral Service. Uh, she's worked with Neighbor Care Health. Um, and she was one of the few acupuncturist teachers that I had that was so 
connected to community in that way that wasn't focused on just individual one-on-one treatments in her office. So she practices all over town. She goes to different community centers, different clinics. She goes to where the people are. She goes to where people need her. And one of the things that she really impressed on me is flexibility. You have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable to the populations that you're working with. And I didn't see that as much in my other teachers. Um, So I really appreciated her being so creative about the way that she went about her business um, and not letting, you know, the constraints of um, capitalism really dictate how involved she was in, in her community. And so I take a lot of those lessons with me. Um, I also am currently having a lot of support from uh, a couple of business mentors right now. Uh, Yara Magdalena, who runs the Embodied Business Community and really um, teaches from being able to, to move through one's business in a way that is not capitalist and really is at the speed of one's own body and one's own emotions and one's own comfort level and making a lot of space for that, space for slowness, um, space for like really fulfilling work that includes a lot of pleasure and is at you know whatever speed we're at at the moment. And I think that that is very fortuitous for me having to practice you know in the midst of a pandemic where things are wild Schedules are not the same like they were before. Um, Structures are not the same. In fact, we have to reform them in order to continue whatever it is that we're doing right now. Um, And along the same lines for that, I would say that Clarinda Braun from Matriarchal Business and Matriarchal Marketing is a huge influence on me as well. So not only is she working from... um, like she does. She doesn't really consider her work as intersectional, uh, intersectional feminism. She she considers it as matriarchal. Like that is matriarchal, as in um, a decolonized form of arg- organizing ourselves and relating to our community. And she uh, teaches a lot about community education as a way to build relationships. Um, where it's not an extractive marketing process or business is not extracting from our communities. It's our business is formed um, with centering our community in mind and, and working from there outwards. So those kinds of supports really um, give me a lot of inspiration and a lot of ways of thinking about running a practice and relating to my community, doing education and outreach that is um, service oriented all the way around. So it's, it's almost like if I'm doing marketing or if I'm doing outreach, that in and of itself becomes an offering. Um, like in my mind, like treatment is not just what happens one-on-one in a clinic. It's also the, material, the content that I put out there, it's my Instagram, it's my Facebook, it's my blog, like all of these things can have an influence on people's health. Um, 
And I think that that's very important to have that infused in all the ways that I walk in the world, business or otherwise. I also want to shout out Ilvamara Radczewski. I hope I pronounced that name right, Ilva. <laughs> the Polish is a little hard for me. Um, but Ilva has been doing wonderful work as a high priestess and a witch. And I'm currently in their um, year-long witch school program. So that's another level of mentorship that I'm experiencing right now. And so much of what she teaches coincides with what my teachers of Helot also teach. And a lot of it is going back to our ancestors and understanding our place amongst our ancestors and how to draw from their stories to examine our privilege, to examine the traumas that um, our, our lineage may have experienced because um, it's not so simple, right? As just like we're a traumatized, that my family is traumatized and not privileged. I mean, I'm still a settler here on Turtle Island and so is my family. So bringing that complexity into the way that I practice magic or medicine or just how I walk in the world is really important to me. Practicing medicine and magic in a way that is not binary is also really important to me. And I, I greatly appreciate how Ilva brings that into her teaching and into her magic in general. In addition to my human mentors, I also have non-human mentors or companions that I'm learning from constantly. So I actually have an emotional support animal, Prim the dog, and Prim the dog has an emotional support cat named Flirt. So these two animal companions, um, I learn a lot from on a daily basis. I learn about how to be present, how to move at the pace of my body, um, how to be responsive to the environment and how to help myself calm the fuck down. Because if I'm keyed up and I'm very anxious, they pick up on that. They can tell me that I need to chill and I need to take a break. Um, I feel really fortunate to currently live really close to a lot of wooded area. So I'm out there um, almost every day taking walks and just observing of observing the world around me and trying to listen to what lessons are there as well. The way that my um, my mentor Apu talks about um, like malevolent spirits or or disease is he doesn't relate to it as something that you need to eradicate. I feel like there, at least in allopathic medicine, there's this relationship with disease or or um, like negative influences as something you go to battle with, like you're at war with. Um, and he, his relationship is that you need to transform it, that you need to transform it. Um, and sometimes you actually need to feed it because if something is like 
attacking you or whatever, it means that there's a need that hasn't been met by that that thing needs. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. And I, I like that interpretation a lot more than it being so combative, right? Like, I don't like to relate to disease that way. I like the, the metaphor of Chinese medicine being like your body's a garden um, where you have to cultivate the garden and you build it up and you make sure that there's like flowers there that attract your pollinators and plants that are deterrents for the things that you don't want, but you're not like at war, you're not trying to round up weed kill everything that's there. Like you build a robust system so that it can regulate itself. So those are different ways of relating to, to the body and relating to trauma, but I, I find them both much more useful than we need to excise something, we need to surgically remove it, or we need to zap it as hard as we can and like bomb it. One of the major influences for me getting into healing work was actually um, was having to need healing work. And I think that that is probably common with a lot of people who do healing work now is that they at some point got really sick or really injured and had to tend to that. And that, and I am no exception. So like in my early twenties, um, I got my dream job, which was to be working at a queer youth organization. Um, and it was really, at, at least at the service level, like very in line with my values. And I was so stoked to do it because um, I was originally, my degree was originally in um, public administration and nonprofit management. So I was like, yes, we're going to do this really cool shit. Um, and one thing that happened was I got hired for this position and the and I accepted it. And then the next day they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we only have two months of operating costs in the bank. And I was like, hello, what? So I was hired without full transparency around the financial situation of the organization. Um, and they were paying me for half, half of my hours and expecting me to fundraise for the rest of it. As you can imagine, this is like a very toxic, very classic nonprofit industrial situation where um, like a person of color is being hired into an organization that has historically been very white and has white leadership. Um, and then, you know, set up without, and then me not having the best setup to actually succeed um, was very, very, very stressful. And I got really sick. Um, doing this kind of work and having to work like multiple side hustles to keep afloat while trying to keep this organization afloat as well. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just like shortcut to the fact that this organization is still in existence and they're doing okay at this point um, and has since had more uh, BIPOC leadership. So that part of the story ended up, I think, okay. Um, but for me, it was like super detrimental to my health. And I wasn't making enough money to be able to afford a lot of care for myself. 
So the only things that I could afford were um, food medicine, that food I could grow for myself or that I could get by working at the co-op that I was um, living close to and um, community acupuncture. And then I also like was able to access some, um, some therapy at sliding scale. So it's like, I survived this through community programs. Um, but a lot of it was like, like I, I had to really invest in my own um, preventative care, my own holistic care. Eventually I did leave that job and just didn't do anything activist or political for a year. Like I left the country and I was like, I'm going to leave and I might not come back. <laughs> um, and I obviously like I did eventually come back, but I had to take a year off to really one recover from that experience. And then two to like see who I was outside of that kind of relationship to work and activism. Um, like I would say that to a certain extent, I was using that kind of work, that kind of like or queer organizing um, to work out my own issues around my own queerness and my own family relationships and communal support. And a lot of that stuff was like, it was like church to me. Like it was, like that's where I was getting my ideology. That's where I was getting my community. That's like that that network of of how I was relating to other things in my life. And it was I was doing it in a way that was toxic for me. I don't inherently think organizing is toxic, but the way that I was engaging in it and the relationships that I had um, to that organization were not good. So I had to I had to like draw some strong boundaries around that and, and cut that off um, in order to again return back to it um, much more whole. And you know, th in that year off, um, I was able to like really reflect and see what would uh, what would bring me pleasure in doing what would actually speak to my natural tendencies is guess what my natural tendencies are not to sit and do a lot of admin work um which was a it, it like seems obvious now but it was a huge revelation to me to think that um i could live the values that i wanted and support the org the the movements that i wanted to support without being in um an administrative nonprofit or like Kind of classic organizer role. Um, when I realized that I could do something that that really spoke to me on just a personal level, and then from that have my values and my politics inform it, um, that was that was a huge thing for me. Even though, like when I say it now, it sounds very simple. It wasn't at the time, um, and so. I was able to like figure out what my silbi was. And silbi is a Tagalog word for like your, your life's purpose. Um, and the way that my teachers talk about it is, is if you don't have your silbi, you don't have, um, you're not complete. 
like a silk in, in the Philippine cosmology, we all have multiple souls. And one of those souls is um, has to do with our life's purpose. And so if we're not complete and we don't have that, we can get sick. If we don't know who we are, we don't know what our role is, and we don't know how um, we are connected to our communities, um, then it is, it's an imbalance and you can't fully step into yourself. So um, that's what I had to learn how to do. I had to get away from all of this other noise uh, and do something that was completely selfish. And I don't mean selfish in a, in a bad way. I just needed to like re recenter um, and really just like strip myself down to just, to just me and then come back to doing the healing work. If I had done healing work like right out of college, I think that would have been a bad idea because I was not ready. I hadn't dealt, dealt with like a lot of trauma um, to the point where I could like, I, I knew I wouldn't harm people. Like I'm not saying that you can't be traumatized and also be a healer, but you need to heal yourself enough so that you're not passing it to other people. Um, yeah, because you, you got to hold space. So if you can't hold yourself enough, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be totally healed, but you need to be resourced well enough to hold space for other people um, to take care of them or else you're going to burn out and you might hurt someone. I think it's really hard and it's, it's very humbling to think of medicine in that way and to, um, like I would say it's taught me to value myself in a different way. Uh, not just as like a community resource, but to really, really, really value myself. Uh, because yeah, like it's like you do matter. You do take up space and you should take up space. You should take up your own space rather, not other people's space or take up space inappropriately, but take up your own space so you can be as full as possible. Because um, that in itself, that's like, that's already fucking up colonization. Can I talk about kink? So, <laughs> I don't know if many people know this about me, but um, I would like to say that one of the heaviest influences of how I practice medicine um, is also being in kink spaces. And I don't mean it, I'm, I'm not talking about like the, the eroticism or the sexual energy of that. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about consent, honestly. I'm talking about consent and negotiation and self-determination. And I have seen people hold space for that very effectively in um, well-run kink scenes. Like obviously there are people who do kink who are not embodying those things. Um, but I have, but in the good kink spaces that I've been in, been in, I have seen people like, I've seen a really great top, like help someone work through their trauma and their pain through the sensation play that they're doing or the BDSM or whatever. Um, that's where I learned bedside manner. Like that's where I learned clinical bedside manner was to be able to sit with someone in whatever state that they're in 
and know that that person was extremely vulnerable and also putting a lot of trust and responsibility in my role. And I will tell you, when I was in acupuncture school, I was booked out at least a month in advance from the student clinic. And it was not because I was the best clinician. I did not get the best test scores. Um, I didn't memorize like all the best formulas or whatever. It was because I could hold space for people and help them feel a little bit safer and that I was clear about what I was doing. And that made all of the difference to be able to negotiate with someone, ask them, you know, like what makes them feel safer? Because there's no such thing as a completely safe space. Um, like you want to be able to negotiate with someone and find out what they, what are the conditions that they will be safe enough to um, like be able to receive care from you. Like, do you have a safe word? Are you checking in constantly with the patient? Um, in Well, not constantly, because that can be really annoying, but like checking in enough um, to make space for the fact that like you need ongoing consent. Um, like I do, I do check in with patients when I'm first working with them. If we are just establishing our relationship, I will check in constantly and I'll let them know I know this might be annoying and you might be trying to relax, but I'm going to ask you a little bit more frequently so that I understand what's happening. And like, I'll ask, you know, we, we won't have to do as much check-ins as we like get to know each other and we're more comfortable working together. So kink has been an incredible influence in that. And I think that there's a lot, there's a lot to learn from, from those types of spaces um, as far as how to, make someone or help someone feel safe when they're in a vulnerable position because um, it there is a power dynamic. As a practitioner working with someone, there is a power dynamic. We need to negotiate that. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. And it needs to be, you know, something that all involved are fully consenting to. And that is an aspect of decolonizing medicine for me is you must have consent. And, and you can negotiate like what that consent is at any point. And we can be even more nuanced to be like, is there enthusiastic consent? Not just, uh, I guess, okay. Um, like let's, let's actually talk about that more so that I am consenting to the same level of consent as that person that I might be working with. What I've learned in my own healing journey um, is a very simple con concept, but it's it's how much context really matters, and how, again, like, and related to that, like holistic medicine is more than mind body. Like holistic also means looking at like your ancestors and what what has happened, like what generational trauma. Have you inherited what generational privilege have you inherited? Like that is also part of the context um, when we're talking about holistic. And yeah, like I, to me, like the mark of a really competent 
provider or healing arts practitioner is when they can do that. When they see the patient and then they see all of the other things connected to that patient, because you're not just, you're not just treating an individual, right? You're not treating an individual out of context with the rest of their community. Like all of that is connected. Like that's what becomes like systemic or structural patterns, good or bad. Um, so understanding that and, and having a relationship to that that goes beyond just what's happening in a patient visit, I think is really important. Like understanding your relationship to capitalism is really important because, you know, like it's kind of expensive to stay licensed and insured and all of these, like it is expensive to be a practitioner. Of, of like acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Like we don't, <laughs> most of us are small business owners. Most of us are like barely hanging on. I think that the last time I checked the median um, salary for an acupuncturist was like 40,000 a year. Like it's, it's not a lot considering a lot of the other um, expenses that go into to paying for that, for that, um, to maintain that that work ab above board. So understanding that we are in a context of capitalism, but then making way for different kinds of exchanges, I think is really important. Like for me, I will charge at my actual cost for some offerings and then, um, or above my actual cost for some offerings in order to provide services that are um, not dependent on fee. So I have like one-on-one -on -one offerings. I also have a Patreon to help me fund some of the other stuff that's just community-based where I'm like, if we didn't have fucking colonization and capitalism, we wouldn't have to exchange energy through money. Like you would be like, it would be, well, in the Philippines, at least it was more of a gift economy. Like that's how you would demonstrate reciprocity with your healers you would be giving them gifts. So it's, it's a negotiation of that. Like, I can't just ignore that I need to pay for stuff with monies, but like, how do we fuck up the system within that? How can we create different alternatives? Um, I mean, a lot of those alternatives existed before capitalism. Like we don't even have to reinvent a lot of it. Um, although I'm open to that, like a lot of times we just have to remember you know, I've been thinking a lot about what the pandemic is doing to healing practitioners right now. Um, and it, it is scary for some of us because for some of us that like we can't go to work or when we go to work, um, it's like a life threat <laughs> to ourselves and other people. Um, so I hope everyone's getting vaccinated if they can. But it like my point being is that our work is transforming in a very rapid um, kind of unpredictable way and that we really have an opportunity right now to and make some transformations happen in our favor um, it's kind of like how in Chinese medicine there's different life stages where our bodies hit um, kind of a crisis that we can harness so puberty, going through pregnancy or going through menopause. These are all 
um, I mean, crisis maybe isn't the right word, but they're, they're points of incredible capacity for transformation that can be, um, like you can harness that, you can shape it, or you cannot, like you can let it like run its course. But, but I think that's like, I think we're at, at something like that collectively right now as healers, um, like the level of access to certain kinds of medicine through telehealth, through like uh, popular education. Um, like, I think that that is amazing. Like watching the resilience and the creativity coming up with different people is so fucking cool. Um, and it like, <laughs> yeah, like it, some access is changing for, for worse, but also like, let's not, let's not lose this type of adaptability. Like there are people who are getting care and connection more now than ever before because of these adaptations that we've made. So I think it's important to keep that in mind and not be afraid of it. Um, yeah. And like, just like with a lot of things right now, we, we get to, we can fuck some shit up in a good way. Wow, the question of what I would say to my younger self, I think that's a really cool question because I really want to be a good ancestor one day and a good elder. Um, so that's like, that's very good practice. Um, I think that, I think I would probably tell my younger self that I did a pretty good job of surviving. Um, it's totally making me emotional. Uh, and it's, yeah, like I think given the information that I had and didn't have, um, I was still able to get myself to where I am today. Uh, and I think that that's really hard. And the part that's making me feel really emotional is like um, a lot of trans people don't make it. We have such a high suicide rate that like, especially um, queer and trans uh, BIPOC. I don't want you to cut this part, by the way. Like, I'm totally like, I got an Aries moon, whatever. <laughs> like feel all the things I don't care um I I think that like there is an element of like you are enough you did enough like being here is really fucking hard and it's not it's not nice a lot of times and I don't, I don't think that there is even, I, I, I couldn't even promise like my younger self or, or younger people, like it gets better. Because for some people, it really doesn't get better. Some people, it gets more fucked up. Um, but I would say that like the fucked upness is not their fault. And like surviving is a feat in and of itself. Um, and I would also say that you have ancestors at your back, even if you feel super alone and super isolated. You're not like someone along, like people along the line in your in your history um, 
genetically related to you or not survived enough that you could come into existence. And I, I, my like definition of ancestors includes our ancestors. It includes people who um, are ancestors by chosen family or ancestors because they helped create the cultures that we are living in now, our plant, our plant ancestors, you know, ancestors of the lands that we might occupy that are not our blood ancestors. So I, I think I would try to impress that, um, that there are greater forces at work, um, some of them in support of us and some of them like structurally set up to fuck us over. And at least for me, like I had to, it was, it took me a really long time to learn that and not think that all the fuck upness was coming from me. But that was like a huge, that that's a huge lesson that I still need to get regular booster shots on through therapy. Um, but it's, it's hard. Cause even if you know that you're getting a lot of messaging from media, from like white culture, white supremacist culture, um, that you have to constantly, uh, like push against or divert. So it might not, it doesn't always get better, but you can get stronger and you can get more connected and you can, um, you know, you can learn more, you can grow more. Thank you for joining us in the Queer Circle today, Jamie. If you'd like to learn more about Jamie's work, check out his website, jamie-pineda-lac.com or on Instagram at jamiepinedahealingarts. To find this information and more, check out our website, queercirclepodcast.com. Music from today's episode provided by Purple Fluorite, found wherever music can be streamed. <laughs>